Hello, everyone. This is Catherine Savela and Myth in the Mojave wishing you a happy, happy, happy new year. Today's program is the Greek Myth of Prometheus, Part 1. It's a replay of a program that originally aired in May of 2013. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, a weekly half hour of storytelling and conversation about mythology and how it informs our lives today. I'm your local mythologist, Catherine Savela, and I'm pleased to bring this program to the high desert and beyond here on Radio Free Joshua Tree. So, we've been talking about the trickster for the last couple of weeks. And today I'm going to tell the myth of Prometheus from Greek mythology. Now, Prometheus has a lot in common with the trickster and characters like Coyote and Ishu, who have been the heroes of our past programs. As you will see, Prometheus breaks the rules. He steals fire like Coyote, and like Ishu, he isn't afraid to diss the high gods. According to some Greek myths, Prometheus is the creator of human beings, and he has a special affection for us, which is another hallmark characteristic of the trickster. But although Prometheus is trickster-like, he is not a full-fledged trickster. Not in my opinion, anyway. We'll talk more about this distinction later on in the program. In the meantime, it's something that you can consider as we get into the story. This myth may be familiar to many of you. A lot of us who are interested in mythology begin with Greek mythology, and there are lots of reasons for that. But since a little context usually helps, let me give you just a bit of background on Prometheus and the context for this story. In Greek mythology, the cycle of creation begins with heaven and earth. Heaven and earth mate, and they have many children including the first race of the gods, and these gods were called the Titans. Kronos, who is also known to us as Saturn, Father Time, the Senex, um, he was the high god or the leader of the Titans. And the later Olympians, Zeus and Hera, Demeter, Poseidon, Hades, and Hestia, were his children. Kronos or Saturn, takes over the control of the cosmos from his father, heaven, when he castrates heaven. So then being familiar with the son's ambition to overthrow his father, when Kronos then is king, he tries to prevent any challenge to his authority by swallowing each of his children as soon as they're born. There's a famous painting by Goya that you may have seen that depicts this act. But as we know, what goes around comes around. And despite these tremendous efforts, Kronos cannot stay in power forever. Ultimately, Zeus escapes this fate and he manages to free his siblings. And the Olympians and the Titans fight a 10-year war called the Titanomachia for control of the cosmos. It takes 10 years, but eventually Zeus and the Olympians win. And when they do, they lock the Titans away in Tartarus, which is 
a type of hell. Most of Greek mythology, then, concerns the Olympian gods, who were a more sophisticated and nuanced set of deities or archetypal principles, if you want to think about it that way. And the fact that most of the mythology has to do with the Olympians is also an example, I think, of the old adage that to the victor go not only the spoils, but the stories. Prometheus, the hero of our story today, was a titan. He was the son of titan parents, but he fought in the great war on the side of the Olympians. So when the war was over, he was not locked away in the deep recesses of Tartarus for 30,000 years, along with the other titans. But as we'll see, he didn't really have such an easy time of it post-war either. This is my version of the Greek myth of Prometheus, which has been told many, many times in numerous variations. And even in classical Greek mythology, there's more than one version of this story. Now, if you don't think you know the myth at all, I think you'll be surprised at how much of it is actually familiar. I'm going to tell the story today in two parts, with a brief break for comments and reflection. So, on that note, let's get on with the story and get that mythic mojo working. Once again, many thanks to Philip Rosenberg for his help in putting this program together. Right now, I invite you to sit back and listen. In a world made of stories, past, present, and future are merely threads woven into a single plot. In a world made of stories, like this one. Prometheus and the Gift of Fire At the end of the great war between the gods, Zeus, the victorious, sentenced the defeated Titan brothers to Tartarus. Tartarus was a place deep and dark and cold and far, far away from heaven and earth. Some of the Titan children shared the harsh fate of their parents, but others did not. Prometheus, the son of Iaptos, had taken the wise counsel of his mother. She told him to fight for Zeus and he was on the side of the Olympians in the war against his father. Prometheus was allowed on Mount Olympus when the war was done. Clever Prometheus had two brothers, angry Atlas and the reckless Epimetheus. When the Titans received their punishments, Atlas was sentenced to carry the heavy weight of the earth on his mighty shoulders to keep heaven and earth apart. And in this way, Zeus created day and night, and time, as we know it, began. Prometheus was a very clever god. The son of a titan, he was quite cunning. The name Prometheus means foresight, a quality that unfortunately brother Epimetheus did not share. Epimetheus was crafty but impulsive. He was one to leap before he looked, which occasionally caused some trouble. Nevertheless, the two brothers roamed the earth together and participated in each other's schemes. The heedless and the provident were inseparably yoked 
together. Finally, it was time for men to appear on earth. Now some say that the gods brought them forth, made of ash trees or mud. But others say that clever Prometheus made the first man to antagonize the divine immortals. Molded of dirt and water, earth was mother to them all. But it was Prometheus's hands that gave the first men shape. When the men appeared, the goddess Athena gave them soul, or psyche, in the shape of a butterfly. But they had little else, no tasks, no tools, no talent, except for cunning, like their champion clever Prometheus, who felt a mysterious affection for the men. The Olympians had other gifts to give to all of the earthly creatures, and they directed Prometheus to dole them out and to equip each creature for life on earth. But Epimetheus went to his older brother and said, Let me do it for you. I can do the job of giving out talents and tasks as well as you can. And Prometheus agreed. After all, his brother was his partner. Epimetheus went to the animals first, to these creatures who were made before man. He gave the eagle sharp vision. He gave the lion stealth. And so on until all of the divine gifts were gone. And when man arrived, there was nothing left to give him. Absolutely nothing. Reckless Epimetheus had left man bare and utterly unprotected in the world. Prometheus was very dismayed by this because the men were his favorite invention. So he cast about for something that they could use, some skill or tool that would ensure them a special place on earth. Zeus saw this and he was not pleased. He was not pleased by Prometheus's attachment to these mortal beings. One day, the men and the gods met at Nikon, the place of poppies, and they began to quarrel. But clever Prometheus had a plan. He gathered them all together and proposed a sacrifice. The portions to be shared among them would then be evidence of their common bond as children of the earth. Prometheus killed an ox and divided the body into two portions, one for the men and one for the gods. One of the portions was fine meat, but it was cleverly stuffed into the unappetizing stomach of the ox. The other portion was a pile of bones, but it was wrapped in appetizing layers of gleaming fat. So the true contents of each of these two portions was concealed. And therein lied the trick devised by clever Prometheus.
because everyone knows that the gods deserve the biggest and the best of everything. And the portion of the bones looked bigger, and the gleaming fat was fragrant and succulent. Zeus, being the high god, came down from Mount Olympus to choose the portion for the gods. And he saw the two laid out by Prometheus and knew right away what was planned. Prometheus was clever, but Zeus was the wisest of all of the gods, and little could escape him. He rebuked Prometheus for his unequal division. And Prometheus could have taken the hint then. He could have seen that Zeus knew what he was up to. But instead, he sweetly offered Zeus the choice of the same two portions again. Zeus wanted to meet trouble with trouble because he had very little love for men or for their titan champion. So he picked the bones just as Prometheus thought that he would, wrapped in gleaming fat, and then he was angry when he discovered the betrayal, although, in fact, he already knew the plan. The gods should stick together, he roared at Prometheus, and let these men look after themselves. And knowing that humankind would soon perish in the cold, Zeus declared, men cannot have fire. Fire belonged to the gods, and Zeus had ordained them that it remained their exclusive right. Only the divine immortals could have warm hands or gaze into the flickering flames. But clever Prometheus, our champion, looked at the men in their suffering and their vulnerability and decided that he simply could not obey Zeus. He decided to give man fire. Fire, he knew, would separate man from the animals and ensure his survival. Clever Prometheus went to his brother, the reckless Epimetheus, and said, My brother, we are engaged in a battle of wits with Zeus. I will make it simple for you. Don't have anything to do with the god, and be especially wary of any gifts. If it looks too good to be true, it is. Just say no. Do not fall into his traps. And Prometheus set off for Mount Olympus, where he could go to the workshop of the divine blacksmith, Hephaestus. Hephaestus, the son of Hera, made beautiful golden jewelry and objects of metal for the Olympians in his fiery workshop. This fire burned around the clock on the divine hearth at Mount Olympus. And so fire was not hard to find. When nobody was looking, clever Prometheus snatched a burning ember and he hid it in the hollow stalk of a narthex, a plant like the wild fennel 
that grows tall by our roadsides near the sea. Brandishing the stalk so that the fire would not go out, clever Prometheus ran as if he was flying back down to the men in their cold, dark camps. And there he gave them this divine gift. Everybody was happy. Even the nymphs and the lusty satires who burnt their beards trying to kiss the flame. When Zeus found out about the theft, he was outraged, but not terribly surprised. He had no love for the Titans or for the men, and he knew their weakness. Zeus devised a plan to match a gift with a gift. The divine king molded earth and water and made Pandora the first woman. Pandora was a beautiful sight to see, with golden ringlets and trim ankles like a goddess. The goddess Athena taught this new woman weaving and crafts. Aphrodite showered her with charms and instilled her with a dangerous passion. Hermes gave Pandora a voice full of praise and promises, lies and wiles. The new woman Pandora was beautifully dressed with garlands of flowers and a golden necklace on her breast, and thus adorned, Pandora was sent to reckless Epimetheus. When Epimetheus saw Pandora, his heart went pop. And without a thought about his brother's warning of trickery, he fell in love with the beautiful woman straight away. And glowing with his great good fortune, the Titan took Pandora back to the men, who also found her irresistible. Now until that time, men had lived easily without harsh toil or sickness, and death came quietly with old age. Because clever Prometheus had all of the evils in the world, sickness and poverty and worry and fear all sealed up in a great clay jar. Pandora was greedy and curious and as crafty as any man. She saw the jar and she wondered what something so large might contain. So one day she sidled up to the great clay jar and opened the lid to peer inside and a flock of terrors flew out, dark and shadowy, and knocked her to the ground. Pandora jumped up and quickly slammed the lid back down, but it was too late. The evil was done. The mistake was made. And ever since that moment, human beings have suffered, and death no longer comes to most of us as a blissful sleep. Hope, with the golden wings, was also in that great clay jar. Some say that hope was trapped under the lip of the jar and flutters in there still 
all alone. But others say that hope escaped and roams the earth as well, for better or for worse. So let's pause here for just a moment. Now you know what the word Promethean means and why the term is often used to describe something or someone that is uniquely clever or creative. Creativity involves bringing something new into the world, and that is not limited to the artistic. Clever Prometheus has created the rite of sacrifice, and he has stolen fire. We heard stories about Coyote and Ishu in past weeks on these two themes. Like Coyote, Prometheus steals fire to make a gift that is an important cultural contribution. With fire, civilization can advance and develop. And something is brought down from one realm to this earth. In the Coyote story, you might recall, the fire was up on top of a snowy mountain peak. In this story, it's also up on top of a mythical mountain, a place where human beings can't go. Now, the issue story about the creation of the rite of sacrifice that I told last week established for us that this is a ritual that binds the participants together and again links the divine or invisible realm with this world or the visible plane of existence. Prometheus is clever and crafty, and these two things that he's done clearly put him in the camp of the mythological trickster, right? And what is this gift of fire, quote-unquote, that we received from Prometheus? Literal, actual fire is certainly valuable, and it's one of the first technologies that human beings had, which I just noticed noted there in the comment about Promethean. Fire can also be thought of metaphorically as consciousness or self-consciousness. However you want to read it, Prometheus gave us something that was intended to put us in the middle, that is, between the gods and the animals. And this in-between space is the realm regularly traversed by the trickster. This being in-between and the creation of in-between spaces is one of the trickster's functions. And yet, I said at the outset of the program that Prometheus shares in trickster mind and way, but is not really a trickster with a capital T. And here is a clue to the difference. There were no cosmic consequences in the Coyote and Issue stories. Yet the Greek god Zeus retaliates by introducing Pandora, the woman, and she brings all kinds of trouble into the lives of men. And what do you think about hope being in that jar? Hope is a double-edged sword, don't you think? But let's go back to the story and find out what happens to Prometheus. Human beings were doomed now to endless misery, And this was a fate shared by their titan champion. Zeus punished clever Prometheus severely for the compassion that he had shown us. He ordered Prometheus be chained to a rock 
on a distant mountaintop in Caucasus. Hephaestus, the divine blacksmith, son of Hera, made chains and heavy shackles and iron bracelets for his wrists and ankles, and nailed the links of these chains to the rocks. Finally, Hephaestus thrust a spear into Prometheus's chest and left him riven to the rock like a butterfly on a pin in a collector's box. Hephaestus was not happy to carry out this assignment, and he groaned as he worked. A newborn power is pitiless, he observed. Clever Prometheus, champion of men, called out to heaven and earth to witness his pain. See me here, he cried, in this torment and humiliation. My agony is unwarranted, my punishment unjust. Man needs fire to survive. My theft was like stealing a loaf of bread to feed the starving. But Zeus, the high god, was unmoved, and in fact ordained a final agony for Prometheus. By his divine command, a great screaming eagle came to clever Prometheus every day and pecked at his liver, inflicting a torturous pain. Every night, the liver grew back. Fresh food for the bird, who returned the following morning. So the anguish was repeated, day after day after day. The future was grim. Remember, Prometheus was immortal. He could not die. He could not escape. But still, he would not bow down. He would not abandon humanity and join the gods. Now that's where we're going to leave Prometheus for today, and I hope you'll tune in next week to get the rest of his story. When the program started, I said that Prometheus is trickster-like, but not actually a trickster, with a capital T. And we talked a little bit about the ways that Prometheus is a trickster during that brief break, but how is he different? In short, because he is punished and he suffers. You could chalk this up to a certain rigidity in ancient Greek culture, which is reflected in their gods. But the Greeks did have a trickster, Hermes, who is every bit the clever, lying, stealing, traveler of the in-between. But maybe there can only be one trickster, and as part of the Olympian order, the Promethean version, if you will, is supplanted by a trickster god who is in a number of ways more nimble and refined. Hermes plays many elegant tricks on humans and gods, and he is never pinned down the way that Prometheus is. Now, if we take this approach, we note that the trickster aspect of Prometheus cannot be erased even under this new order of gods. He still acts the trickster, and he is connected to human beings in a way that Hermes is not. Hermes is only out for Hermes. 
Prometheus suffers because he will not be put down, and yet he is no longer a trickster with a capital T, because he does suffer too much, and his allegiance has tilted firmly in the direction of humankind and the mortal world. Prometheus is less fluid than Coyote or Ishu, for example. He's fixed. He's literally chained to a rock. Can you feel that in this story? So that's it for me, Catherine Savela, and Myth in the Mojave this week. If you have questions about today's program or mythology in general, you can email me at mythicmojo at gmail.com or find Myth in the Mojave on Facebook. You can find this story or many others like it online at www.catherinesavela.com. I want to give special thanks to Travis Rosenberg for permission to use a bit of his music as the theme for this show. So tune in next Saturday at 3 p.m. for the finale of The Myth of Prometheus. And in the meantime, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive. Thank you.